Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning as we continue to look at a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, so I'll give you a second to turn there. It's really interesting. It's, there, are these, there are certain passages that you get to. I don't know if you've ever, just when you're reading your Bible, you get to something, and after you read it, you go, what in the world does that even mean? Have you ever done that before? Well, you're probably gonna feel that way today. <laughs> I'm just saying it up front. Uh, as I was driving earlier this week, I was listening to N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is probably one of the top New Testament scholars in the world right now. And I was listening to him talk about the passage that we're going to be looking into in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says, you know, some years ago, I remember kind of teaching through this passage and going, yeah, I don't know that I got this right. He goes, and now here I am, and I still don't think I got this right. And then I'm like, I've got to talk about this thing on Sunday morning, man. Give me the insight. What does it mean? This, this passage uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has to do with a lot of things, and you're going to have to get really comfortable with something that I'm going to be saying to you this morning. And it's this, we're not sure. Like, you're going to have to learn to be okay with that. I'm going to give you, what does this mean? Well, we're not sure. Uh, so I'll get to certain points in the passage, and I'll even invite you to join in with me. What does this mean? And I'll have you say it. We're not sure. <laughs> we're not sure. Now that said, in spite of some of the uncertainties with regard to this passage, there are some things that we can know. And so I'll definitely highlight those for you. So let's just jump in. Does that sound good? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to begin in verse 2. And Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of, of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God, meaning the Father. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. And all God's men said, no, I'm kidding, don't do that. That's, <laughs> just making sure you're with me so far. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her, her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Hold on just a second, I gotta look around. I wanted to see this this morning. I actually don't see any head coverings today and I wanna know what's wrong with you people. <laughs> All right, let's go back. A man ought not cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Guys, be careful with that verse, please. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? I mean, I'm looking at the guys now. I looked at the ladies earlier. But that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. 
If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And I am just so glad this morning that I have nothing to explain to you with regard to this passage. You know, as I was rereading it this week, I was like, what am I doing? Why didn't why did we just get to this part and go and turn the page? Which honestly is what a lot of pastors do. You get to these passages and you go, that is really tough. What do we do? And the answer is, you lick your finger and you turn the page. The problem is, that doesn't give you any insight into the word of God. Uh, all scripture is God breathed, all of it, including this passage, and so it is of good use to us. That said, I'm gonna tell you on the front end, there are a number of challenges to interpreting this passage. Let me just kind of talk about a few of those so that we can have some fun. Here's the first. We're not sure if, when he uses the word head covering, if Paul means an actual covering of the head, like a shawl, or if Paul is just talking about having long hair. Did you notice a couple of times he talked about a woman having long hair? It reminded me of this moment much earlier in our marriage when Wendy said, how do you like my hair? I said, I like it long and curly. And then she went and cut it the next day. <laughs> it's true. She still looked great, but she did it. Is he talking about that? We're not sure. Um, second, what does it mean that the, the man is the head of the wife? Some of you probably sit out there and were like, hey. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're familiar with biblical scholarship, what you, can, what you know is that the question, which a lot of books have been written about, about there's this word, kephale, the word that Paul uses for a head, usually means an authority. Like you could say, you know, the, the, the head of a church. You could say the head of a school, a head of a business, something like that. The head of the staff. But in some contexts, it means a source. Kind of like the headwaters of the Mississippi, it's the source of the Mississippi. Which one does Paul mean here? Authority or source? Now, we're, we're not sure. It's really debated. Third, even if we figured all of that out, like we were able to settle this this morning, and we probably won't, how does this apply to us today? I mean, is Paul saying in this passage that women should wear shawls in church? Or is it a sin for a woman to come in here with a short haircut? Because he kind of mentioned that, right? How would you apply that today? All of you are really worried right now, right? And finally, if this helps encourage you, the context that Paul was writing in, it was even more contentious than, and this is gonna be hard to believe, it was even more contentious than what we're dealing with right now. It was. On the one hand, you had Jews who were super traditional and what are called patriarchal, meaning the men really did have all the privilege and power. So you had them. On the other side, Corinth was one of the most sexually confused societies in ancient history. And all these people are living in the same space. Feels a lot like us right now, doesn't it? I want you to remember, I told you earlier, and we looked at this letter, to Corinthianize in Greek was actually a verb. That's not good. I mean, if people are referring to where you're coming from as a verb, it's just bad news. And it was no different for them. So that would mean like to, to, to sexually corrupt somebody would be to Corinthianize them. That'd be like to Kingwoodize people and they're talking about like that and you go, man, people really don't like us in Kingwood. It would be like that. Why? Because sexual promiscuity was everywhere. His, historians even tell us that in that time, transgenderism was a problem. So you would like to think that what we're having to navigate right now is new. It's not new. Cross-dressing was common. 
by both genders. I'll give you more on that here in just a second. So I want to give you some thoughts about this passage, and hopefully these are helpful thoughts. And here's the first. What, what, what really is of concern in this passage? And, it, and it's this. The Corinthians were blending their Christian faith with a pagan, with a pagan practices. And that's a problem. And by the way, we do the same thing today. Uh, we would like... I went on a mission trip some years ago and I went down to Haiti. I've been there a number of times. And I remember before I went, uh, there was this adage and it said, Haiti is 80% Catholic and 100% voodoo. That was what was said. And then you go into Haiti and you go, you know what? They were right. Now, how is it that you would have people that on the one hand would try to affirm something that is orthodox about Christianity, like the belief in the Trinity, but then say, I got no problem with the practices of voodoo and kind of mix it in like a gumbo. It won't work. The Corinthians were doing the same thing. And friends, if you're not careful, you will too. You will too. So they were doing it. There were cultural issues going on then and Paul was speaking to them. So can I say this to the church? There are cultural issues that are going on now and we need to speak to them. I mean, after all, if you're not gonna let God's voice be heard and you're going to let everybody else's voice be elevated and the volume of that go up, what condition would you expect things to be in? You gotta let God's voice be heard. Thankful for Paul, he would speak to it. It wasn't popular, but it was important. There are cultural issues going on now and we need people to speak to them. One of the things I do wanna say about this though is make sure that you are prepared to speak to them before you speak to them. And also present yourself with gentleness and respect. But by all means, speak to it. Some of the things that they were dealing with. We know that the Christians in Corinth, they would go and worship with pagans in idol feasts. And Paul's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do that. If you were to take, if you were to take a, a, a brownie and you were to have every single ingredient that is necessary for the brownie, but I said, we only put 5% of arsenic in there. The rest of it is pure, Right? But 5% of it that we kind of whipped in there was arsenic. How many of you are going to eat those brownies? And I know some of you have problems with eating chocolate, like you like it a lot, but I'm going to guess that none of you would probably take to that pan. Why is that? Is because what you had done is you had polluted the purity of what was meant to be there to begin with. That's exactly what they were doing when they were going in and jumping in on idle feasts. And Paul's like, you got to stop. You got to stop. Second, the Lord's Supper, when they would come together as brothers and sisters to celebrate the sacrificial death of Christ on our behalf and the goodness of his grace to us, it had turned into a drunken feast. And Paul's like, you've got to be kidding me. You're corrupting the table. And now he's speaking to issues related to gender, if you caught that. Let me tell you why. At least for them in Corinth, the worship of Dionysius, who was the god of wine, that was a real thing. So Dionysius was, just so you know, he was the offspring of Zeus, according to their literature, and was the offspring of Zeus in an adulterous relationship. So Zeus had stepped out on Hera with somebody else. The result of that union was this guy, Dionysius. Now, as you can imagine, when Zeus steps out on the lady, the lady is not a happy lady. So what did she do? She wanted to kill the one that was the result of the adulterous affair. That would be Dionysius. So what did they do? Finding that out, what they decided is that the male god, Dionysius, would disguise himself. He would dress like a woman. He would have long hair like a woman. He even walked like a woman and even manipulated his voice so that he would sound like a woman. 
Euripides is the one that records all of this. And this was prevalent in belief in Corinth at that time. So the worshipers of Dionysius would describe him as both male and female. He wasn't one or the other. He was both. Regarding his sexuality, he was bisexual. Does this sound familiar at all? They even celebrated Dionysius's gender swap. The people in Corinth with their own role reversals, literally festivals and ceremonies where men dressed like women and women dressed like men. That was going on in Corinth. And here's the caution that Paul is giving. He was like, when you do this, you have to understand you are sending mixed signals. You are sending mixed signals with regard when you're jumping in on the worship of idols, you're sending a mixed signal to the people. You should be sending a different signal. And it's no different with regard to these other issues, whether it's having a drunken feast at the Lord's Supper or whether it's even what's happening here with regard to gender. Paul says, be very careful because you're aligning yourself with something. Even the talk about hair length and head coverings, it seems a little weird, doesn't it? I mean, why are women to cover their hair in church and men have short hair? We're not sure. I told you, you gotta get used to this. We're not sure. But let's start with men. I'm gonna give you a couple of possibilities. Uh, One is because long hair on men, at least in Corinth, might lead to the suspicion that they were homosexual. So be careful. Or second, the long hair could have meant that they resembled the people called the sophists. I actually haven't talked about them in a while. But what the sophists were, were people that would come in and they weren't worried about the truth. That wasn't anything that they were interested in. What they were interested in was being highly gifted rhetorically to basically rally people around their movement so that they could gain power and money. Are you with me? That's what they were about. So some think that what was happening in Corinth is they had a particular look to them. So guys, if you're gonna be be like trying to set yourself apart from what the sophists are, the people that aren't worried about truth, they're in it for power and money, you need to set yourself apart from that. You don't need to be looking like these people. You even already saw this in 1 Corinthians because Paul says, I have every right for you to pay me for the ministry that I do, but some of you people think that I'm here for the cash and I'm not. I want you to know Christ. Keep your money. He separated himself for the good and the advancement of the gospel. That's some possibilities with the men. Now for the women. Are you ready to talk about your hair? Because here we go. The covering. Could it, could it mean hair? It could. If so, it should be done up, as was the custom of married women at that time. Here's why. If it was long and flowy, she could be suspected of adultery. Literally just kind of marketing that about herself. And Paul would be like saying, don't do that. That's one possibility. Here's another possibility. It could literally mean to put something like a shawl over a literal covering. If so, Paul probably wants married women to wear a head covering over their head and shoulders. Why? Because that's what the Greek women did in that culture to indicate their marriage and their fidelity to their marriage. Okay, that's a possibility. Or, and here's a weird one, and it's weird, and I'll go ahead and tell you this up front, There was a belief back then, a medical belief, and I'll tell you up front, it's wrong, but it's something that they believed, that the woman's hair served almost like a sponge during procreation. It's weird, but it's something that they believed. 
So here's what that would mean. What that would mean is if a woman has her hair on full display, it would be the equivalent of walking around with her private parts on display. And Paul is like, no, no. Now, which one is it of those? Well, say it with me. We're not sure. We're not sure. Here's another question. Are we supposed to do this today? If so, some of you ladies are in trouble. Guys, some of you have long hair. Some of you do. Are we supposed to do this today? I mean, at the end of the, you can if you want, but I think what Paul is doing is he's dealing with specific issues that were facing that church and giving them the way out, the way to separate themselves from the rest of society. So this is the moral of this part. Keep your faith and your signals pure and clear. Keep your faith and your signals of it pure and clear. Here's what we do know. You gotta be thankful for me saying that. Here's what we do know. Paul wanted Christian men and women to communicate their conduct with appropriate signals of marital fidelity and the worship of Jesus. And for nobody to be confused who you were loyal to. That you were loyal in your marriage and that you were loyal to Christ. And nobody's wondering about it. That we know. People should never be confused about who we are loyal to because of the actions that we take. They shouldn't. Act like the pagans and you can't be surprised that they think you're one is another way of saying what Paul is trying to communicate. So here's the question would be for us. You're sitting out there going, I don't really struggle with this stuff today. No, but maybe you do struggle with sending mixed signals. And the question would be, which one are yours? Which one are yours? And Paul would say, just make sure that you're keeping it clear because mixed signals creates confusion. Second thing, we need to celebrate the differences between men and women because we're different. I am in a home with five women. Between Wendy and my four daughters, that's five women. One of the things that I tell my girls is pay close attention to me because I'm what you're gonna marry. <laughs> we're different. And you know what? It's totally fine. Even of my four girls, all four of them are different from each other. They're just differences that are out there but what this passage is trying to tell us is we really need to celebrate the differences between men and women. If you look at verse three, Paul said, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. What, what's going on there? Let me be clear. This in no way means that she's inferior to the man. Absolutely not. The woman in Genesis is described, you remember Adam is alone and God looks and he says, that's not good. And he creates the woman and describes her as a suitable helper to him. She helps him. Be real careful with what you do with that. Because in the Hebrew, the word helper there is more used to describe God than it ever is to describe the woman. And so if you wanna take that Hebrew word and say, see, you're here to serve me, be careful with that because God is higher than you. And trust me, we're here to serve him. We're here to serve him. So let's at least start there. Uh, the helper can be fully equal to the head. And we know from Genesis 2 that the woman is created in the image of God, just like the man. We're separate, but we're equal. Even the word rib, you know, that Eve was drawn from the rib of the man. I don't know if you know this, but it probably doesn't mean rib. That word occurs over 40 times in, the new, in, in, the, in scripture. And not one time does that word actually mean rib. Not one time. You know what it means? It's better translated, the side of a sacred piece of architecture like a tabernacle or a temple. That's who she is. 
And here's what that means. That means that both of their bodies, his and hers, are compared to sacred pieces of architecture. And here's what that would mean. So is yours. It's compared to a sacred piece of architecture. It is beautiful. It is precious. It is sacred. Temples embody God's presence. And so do we. So be careful with what you show with the temple. Even if you look at verse eight, notice this. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. That's talking about back to Genesis. She's sourced from him. And then look at verse 12. For as woman came from man, guess what? So also man is born of woman. Well, that's pretty much everybody else after her, right? So it's like, don't draw too much from here because here's why, because everything came from God. Everything came from God. Did you notice that Paul actually drew from the Trinity to make the point? He says, the father is the head of Christ. It doesn't mean they're not equal. Of course they are. Christ from all eternity had every perfection of the father and the spirit, every perfection. He's not less than in any way. Couldn't mean that. We know that. So the man is the head and the woman is the helper does not mean the husband is superior to her ever. But notice verse 11. It says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. What does that mean? And it's this, we need each other. We need each other. No men without women, no women without men, God-given differences, but neither less than the other. Celebrate the differences. Third, we should celebrate the expression of all of the beautiful spiritual gifts that God has given to all of us men and women, both. We should celebrate those. And we should empower them to be put on on full display and of good use for the kingdom of God. We should. Did you notice in verse five that it says that men and women were praying and prophesying in the church? Did you catch that? It wasn't just the guys. It was the guys and the gals. Even, Even notice this, Apollos, he was a big figure in the early church. He was a big deal. People loved him. Uh, They thought he was a phenomenal communicator and speaker. He would draw this huge following. They started to align themselves either with Paul or this guy, right? Apollos. But in Acts chapter 18, he has to be corrected. And Priscilla and Aquila are the ones that did it. They pulled him aside, it says in Acts chapter 18, so that he would be better equipped in the word. He was teaching something false. We don't know what it is. We know it's a fact. And he was better for having had both of them pour into his life, her and him. We should celebrate every single expression of God's gifts to his church, both men and women. One of the people, just think about this week, um, one of the people that I miss being a part of our worship service is Helene Muhlman. And some of you don't know who that is. She's with the Lord now. But she would pray on Sunday mornings with us here during worship. And by the time she said amen, you felt like you were in the presence of Christ himself. She would draw you so close to the throne of God. And it was absolutely no different when she and I would pray together. And then when she would stop and she would pray with me and she would pray over me and I walked away and I thought, I have been ushered into the presence of the Lord. That's how much that woman meant to me. And I miss her. We need more of that. Praying and prophesying in the church. And it was from both of them. So with this passage, and I told you it was gonna be challenging, they're the things that I want you to keep clear. What Paul's teaching in this passage, it really does affirm three things. 
The first is respect for a creation mandate to maintain and even celebrate the differences between men and women. They're good. They're good. Second, a respect uh, for different approaches guarding moral and sexual purity because it's important and we don't want to send mixed signals. And then third, there's a commitment to integrating women and men in the full expression of the good for the building up of Christ's church and the work that we're doing in it. Those three things we know. What about the rest of it? Well, we're not sure. We're not sure, and that's okay. There's something that I wanna say in the way that we end this. Paul has this call to the church. He says, literally, you should look different. Literally, you should look different. That when people look at you, they would say there's something different about that person. They can see it in the full expression of the embodiment of your faith. They can see it. It's there. I want to tell you this this morning. Authentically living the Christian life will make you different. It will make you different. You will look different. And this makes sense. Following Jesus means you aren't following other ways of life. He says, I am the way. It's a way of life. And following him means you're just gonna look different. It's gonna make you stand out. Learn to be comfortable with it. It's all right. It's all right. And even in Romans chapter six, verse four, Paul said, for we died, we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. When we baptize people, we're baptizing them into Christ this old way is dead and raising not just into Jesus, but into the community of believers. You're identifying with something different. It's who you weren't before. God has done something new and in it, he has given you every single power for godliness and holiness. It's already there. It's through his spirit and it's through his people. This is why I love what Tim Keller says. He says, God sees us as we are. He loves us as we are. He accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. He will change you. He will change you. I just hoped and prayed in looking at a weird passage like this today that all of us, myself included, somehow would encounter Jesus. That's what we're here for, is to encounter him, to be open, to be open to the kind of change that he wants to bring in our heart. And in following him, making a statement about who our loyalty is actually with. So a couple of questions. This is the way I end because we're gonna have a little time of prayer and we're gonna have a time of praise. Do you send mixed signals? Do you send mixed signals with regard to your faith? We need to accept a challenge today about the purity and the beauty of what we have in Jesus. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.